Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to the Word this morning. We're going to look at the woman and the dragon and two beasts from Revelation 12 and 13. Have you ever uh, been to a scary movie and once you left, you really had to work at it in your mind to convince yourself that what you saw was not real? This is not real. I don't need to be scared. This, I don't know why this is affecting me this way. Well, let me just uh, warn you, today is a scary movie of a category all its own, and it is real. But my intent is to convince and to assure you that as a Christ follower, you can walk confidently by faith in the one who has redeemed you. In, the, in, in context of where we are in the book, we are still in that period of interlude where we are learning more and more about the period known as the Great Tribulation. And today we're going to look at the background to a struggle in the heavenlies that stands behind all that is going to transpire on the earth. And so today I want you to see that Jesus is the Christ who shed his blood to conquer Satan. And all who are saved by faith are eternally secure in him. You see, Revelation chapter 12 is not the foretelling of history, but it is the representation of the struggle in the spiritual world behind history. This is background for an eschatological persecution of the church by one commonly known as the Antichrist. And when we come to chapter 12, we begin with three battles that we're going to look at today. Now, again, for the sake of time, I'm not able to read all of the texts, but I do want to begin by reading verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12 that kind of sets the stage for our message today. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. May God bless the reading the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Three wars we're going to see today. This is the first of those wars, and it's between a woman and a red dragon. The woman is introduced as a great sign, and the red dragon will be introduced as the same. And her description establishes both her dominion and her royalty. So this is one that we need to pay particular attention to. She is pregnant and crying out in the pains and agony of birth. 
And we need to understand that she's not an actual person, but she is the representation of the messianic community from which the Messiah of God would be born. That's what it means when it says she is a great sign and then describes her. Another great sign appears in verse three. It is the great red dragon. The description is also ornate of the dragon with seven heads, 10 horns, and seven diadems or crowns on his head. He is one who is called the ancient serpent, the accuser, the devil, or Satan. And his red color alludes to his character that is one of violence. He is God's arch enemy. He is the accuser and the tempter of God's people. He is the deceiver of the whole world. And his tail is so great in size, but also power, that when he sweeps across the sky, one third of the stars of heaven cast down to earth. And it tells us he stands before the woman who is about to give birth because he is there to devour the child. The woman gives birth and immediately the male child who she gives birth to, who is given a rod of iron who will rule all the nations, is immediately taken up into heaven where God is. And she is taken out into the wilderness where God will nurture her for 1,260 days. In this first battle, John provides for us a very vivid picture of the spiritual reality in heaven that is beyond our sight. So often we say, we want to know God, we want to know. God says, okay, here it is. You don't see this often, but here I will give you a picture of it. It is a battle which in turn has consequences for earthly experience for the church here And the scene captures the whole scope of Jesus' ministry from his, uh, 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 excuse me, of his ministry and his work from birth all the way to his ascension where he is seated in heaven with God. But the scene captures something else too that we need to see today. It captures the impotence of Satan to hinder what God is doing. And I want you to note again, That the woman is protected by God and she is nourished for a distinct period of time. That the baby is immediately taken up even though the dragon stands waiting for it. And so this is not just simply the next event, but it is one that transpires just prior to and leads to the great tribulation. We've seen the backstory. We have context to understand what's going to transpire on the earth. And in this first war, the great red dragon tries to kill the son of God, the Messiah who is born, but he fails. He fails. Do you understand this? I want you to see this because it is very important for us. Verse seven through verse 12, the second war erupts between the dragon and now Michael, the archangel. Michael and his angels come out to fight the dragon and it tells us that the dragon and his angels fought back, but immediately it says their fate was the same. They were defeated. And with this, it is verified that there is no longer a place in heaven for the dragon, for the great dragon and the angels are thrown to earth. 
And at that, John hears a loud voice in, in heaven that announces that the kingdom of God has come and been established. And the great dragon here is identified as the accuser before God. He is no more in heaven. But of greatest significance, I want you to see verse 11. Verse 11, what I believe is the central aspect, not only of this chapter, but of the book of the Christian life itself, of greatest significance is the means by which the wars have been won. And look what verse 11 says. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Here, friends, we see the centrality of Jesus' atonement and the faithful witness of his followers in the supreme battle. The blood of Jesus expels Satan's accusations from before God and the testimony of those who've been redeemed by his blood, who testify to his blood, declare that the accusation of the wicked, perverse, prosecuting attorney shall be no more heard in heaven by God. Salvation has come. And all the grounds of the satanic accusation have been removed by Christ's death. God's power has been demonstrated. The righteousness of his kingdom has been established. And the authority of Christ as Lord of all, is done. In the second great war, the great red dragon that failed to conquer and kill the Son of God in the first war fights God's angels, but he is defeated and he falls to earth with his angels. I don't know if you're a fan of baseball or not, but when you're down by two strikes... You're between a rock and a hard place. And that's where Satan is at the end of verse 16, or excuse me, verse 12 in chapter 12. Two strikes, two strikes. Verse 13 through 17 of chapter 12 tells us about a third war that erupts on earth. And in this war, we're seeing the continuation or the realization of what we've already seen in heaven. The dragon pursues the woman. The dragon pursues the woman, it tells us. But the woman is given two wings of the great eagle to fly into the wilderness where she had provision and protection for time and times and a half a time. Now, I want you to remember, again, what I've pointed out several times. There are three references to times that all refer to the same period. 1,262 days, 42 months, a time, times and a half a time, or all three references to the same period of time, okay? And so when we see this, we see that what is happening is the dragon is pursuing the woman, but in her pursuit, as we saw in the earlier verses, she is given 
the wings of an eagle to fly off. And immediately John is drawing from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 31, where we hear that they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as the eagle. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk. And not faint. What is he telling us here but that this one who represents the messianic community will be provided with all that is needed and protected by the very power of God bestowed upon them? Now, again, we're, we're capturing a very quick, small glimpse of what is transpiring that will be unfolded for us in more detail. But you need to capture the picture now. The serpent grows so furious at this woman that he pours out a river from his mouth to sweep her away. But the word says the earth just opens up and takes it all. And this makes the dragon even more furious. And so it says, now on earth he went off to wage war on those who keep God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Friends, it's on. The dragon is furious, and just as he pursued the woman, so he will persecute God's people. The war of heaven is the war that has come to earth. The persecution of the church is the same as the pursuit of the woman. But might I remind you, which I will return to limitless numbers of time today, the outcome will be the same as well. Don't get that wrong. As God protected and provided for the woman, he shall do the same for her offspring And while John shows the rage of the dragon, he continually reminds us of the shelter of God's promise. The shelter of God's promise. God provides and he protects his people. And while Christians will be persecuted, we will not be defeated nor destroyed. What we're seeing here is God revealing reality under the cover of his promise. Satan wants to accuse us before God, but Jesus silenced him. He wants to pursue us, but God carries and sustains us. He makes war, but the outcome shall be as it was in heaven, a third strike. He will be out. As ominous as John describes the great dragon, Satan, don't forget the finality of what he says about him. He's a failure He is our defeated foe. He will strike, but even as God said in Genesis 3.15, his head shall be crushed. Satan's lies, his accusations, and his assaults, they are impotent to injure any of God's people because he, by the blood of Jesus Christ and the word, the testimony to that blood, have already secured the victory that is in him. In the third war, the dragon who failed in heaven, the dragon who fell from heaven, grows furious to make war against God's people. But he is already our defeated foe. Surely this is some of the hardest truth that you will ever hear. But be careful to hear the whole truth. That's what I want you to understand today. When we walk through these two chapters of Revelation, 
I'm going to set forth a foundation of three truths that I want you to see this morning from the text. And upon those three truths, I'm going to build an application of an assurance for you about your faith in Jesus Christ. So with each truth, there will be an assurance. And then at the end, there's a test. I'm warning you now. Don't get mad at me then. It won't be a pop quiz, just a quiz. The first truth I want you to see from Revelation 12 is this. Christ conquered Satan by the blood of his cross. And Christ's followers overcome by faithful testimony to Jesus' cross. But Satan pursues Christians as their adversary. Friends, we've we've been given the benefit of seeing the finish line from heaven's perspective. But we live in the reality of the war ongoing. Revelation 12 reveals the very heart of the whole book of Revelation from its message to its purpose. And I would argue the very heart of Christianity when it teaches us what the atonement of Christ on the cross accomplished for us and our salvation Friends, you are not alone in this war. God is not absent, nor is he ignorant of our struggle and our suffering. God is working, he is protecting, and he is providing to bring the same victory to us that has already been won in heaven. We must understand who we are. That we are a people as God's people who are journeying in the wilderness even as the woman was carried there for her own protection and provision. But we are headed for the promised land. The wilderness is not our final destination. The promised land is. And though we will suffer persecution in this life, we will not be ultimately defeated Ours is to bear a faithful testimony to the cross of Jesus Christ and learn to love him more than our own life itself. And learn to love him more than our own life itself. I want you to understand the power of the Christian testimony even if it demands martyrdom and being slain. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan is defeated by the blood of the cross and the testimony of those who bear word and witness to the cross, even when it demands their very life. As one scholar said, better to die with the gospel than to live without it. Another said, we conquer Satan by being conquered because that's how Christ overcame and conquered him. No matter how strong Satan may appear, he was defeated, hear me, once for all at the cross. Once for all. This is the truth upon which we establish our assurance. And here is the assurance Christ followers overcome Satan by Christ's victory as we run to the truth of God's word to bear a faithful testimony to Jesus' cross. Friends, we overcome Satan by the very victory that ultimately defeated him in Christ himself. 
when we run to the refuge of the truth of God's word to bear a faithful testimony to Jesus' cross. Well, frustrated by failure to destroy the woman and the Messiah, the dragon now directs his wrath against the church on the earth. He takes his stand to call forth a beast, which will become his primary instrument in the last persecution. Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, we see that the dragon stands on the sand of the seashore to call forth a beast from the sea. Let me read these first two verses of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The dragon standing on the sand of the seashore calls forth a beast with ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on its horns and blasphemous names written upon its heads. The dragon expands its forces to increase its attack upon the people on the earth during this period of great tribulation. And what we see here with these numbers of ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems, We've talked about how numbers are critical for proper understanding in the book of Revelation. And 10 is perfection and 7 is completeness. Or excuse me, 7 is perfection, 10 is completeness. So what does this represent on the first beast? But it represents to us the fullness of the beast's power. And we'll later learn that even the horns of the beast represent 10 kings. And we'll see that and unpack that later. We also see that he is fast like a leopard. He is powerful like the bear's claw and he is paralyzing like the lion's mouth. Look at this though. The beast is given its power, its throne and its authority by the dragon. I wanna point out here what the dragon is doing because it's instrumental in understanding how it is that Satan himself works in every manner and form. He is mimicking divine work here, bestowing his authority and his throne and his power upon the beast and ultimately a second beast, he'll do that as well. But remember when we've talked about the divine passives of revelation and understanding the work of God in the midst of this, that when something is in past tense action, second person where the action occurs to the character in the story, but not by the character in the story, we see what is called divine passives where God is working. Well, here the dragon is mimicking that work and bestowing upon the beast his own power and authority. And you're going to see this over and over and over again where the dragon and the beasts mimic the work of our triune God. That's where we're headed with this. Most distinctively, it tells us that there is a mortal wound on the head that had healed And at that, the whole earth marveled at him as they worshiped the dragon and the beast. John goes on to describe the work of the first beast. 
His mouth is loud and commanding and filled with slanderous words. And he will exercise authority for 42 months, it says. Again, a reference to that period of time. His speech is blasphemous against God's name and against God's dwelling and also against all of those who dwell with God. He is allowed to make war on the saints and even, yea, hear me, to conquer them. And authority that he has given extends over every tribe and people and language and nation. All earth dwellers worship him and all of those who are the, worship, or the earth dwellers or whose names are not recorded before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Something interesting happens in verse 8. Go to verse 8 and look at it with me. He says, all who dwell on earth, we talked about earlier, earth dwellers were the people who were not sealed by God's sealed spirit. So those who have not been sealed by the spirit of God for salvation are the earth dwellers. And that's the reference here. And he tells us in verse 8, all who dwell on earth will worship everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. That'll be important in a moment. But here, I want you to understand that the text shifts from the past tense to the future tense. And in that shift that John makes, we learn that the worship of the beast will extend not only in John's day, but to the end of all time. So it's ongoing, it's active, is what he's telling us there. This first beast is what most know as the false or antichrist. He has given Satan's authority and power to position himself in the place of Christ. That's why you hear so many uh, references to the things that sound familiar about Jesus, but the antichrist or the false Christ is positioning himself in the place of Christ to be worshiped by all. His appearance the very being and his work all mimic Christ. And he does that to attack Christ followers, but also to captivate the earth dwellers so he will uh, attend to their worship. What John is also doing here, he's drawing from the vision of Daniel chapter 7. And that's where we come when we understand what John's doing there. That, that in drawing from that vision, we see that this first beast represents any institutional power that is political, that is military, or that is economic up on the earth, that is used in such a way to serve Satan in the opposition of God and his people. And so we see this first representative of the institutions that exist upon earth that are used, that are captured by Satan himself through the first beast and are being carried out to continue and try and serve the purpose of Satan. But most stunning of all, verse 9 and 10, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Most stunning of all is how effective the first beast is in his work. Don't miss this. You need to understand this. 
And so John concludes the introduction of the first beast, the Antichrist, with the heralding of this sober reality that many of God's people will be taken captive. Many of God's people will be physically slain in this world. And in response to this, how do people respond to this? I mean, this is, this is not good news. Except there's one last sentence, and it says this, friends. Don't miss this. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And here is our second truth that I want you to see today. The false Christ will deceive many earth dwellers and attack God's people. But he is impotent to remove any name from the Lamb's book of life. Sometimes when you get what you ask for, you wish you hadn't asked. God, show us. Okay. Why? Well, God wants us to know. He wants us to understand. What he doesn't want us to do is get preoccupied and distracted by the details and the data of the information so that we miss the message that he is sending to us. And just as the Lord Jesus suffered in the flesh for a higher glory of our salvation, so his followers should arm ourselves with right thinking that we too will and may and even some to death itself suffer in our flesh for the sake of Christ. You say, well, how can you, how can you explain this or, or even validate this, Pastor? Because physical death is of no threat to us, Christian. As a matter of fact, it's a reality for us all. I only know of one who by his own means died and was resurrected. But in him is the firstborn of the resurrection. It means there's promise for all who believe in him. Listen to the words of Peter to the Christians of the first century who were living under severe persecution, either of Nero or Domitian or one of those Roman Caesars. He says this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking because for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What Peter is preparing the Christians of the first century to do in rightfully arming themselves with a proper way of thinking about our life in this world, it is the same thing that John has done in 1211 when he says that not only by the blood of Jesus on the cross, but also the faithful testimonies of the saints who loved not their life more than the one who gave them their life. This is the way we think about our life. Death is of no threat to us. We don't have to run after it. We don't have to desire it more quickly or try to accentuate the process, but we should never stand in fear of it. Suffering 
for the name of Jesus Christ is not something we seek out. But when we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, it is an honor to us because we know even by Jesus' words, we rest in the blessed peace of God in the midst of our persecution. Blessed are you when you are persecuted, Jesus says. Not trite cliche, friends. Words of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No matter how much suffering, uh, suffering that we may endure, no matter to what extent, listen to that last phrase of verse 10. Satan is powerless to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul declared what he said in Romans 8. I am confident of this, that even through hardship and trial and tribulation and distress, through persecution, through famine, through nakedness, through danger, through sword, nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so on this second truth, I want to build this assurance for you, Christian. God's call is sufficient to source the saints' endurance for all persecution. The call of God. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That phrase for you and I, Christian, and for all Christians of all times, is that God's power will be sufficient for you to endure any persecution that you may ever face in this life. You see, the Lamb's book of life, of which the first beast is trying to take people away from, is a book that does not contain eraser marks. There is no disappearing ink that is recorded in the Lamb's book of life. Written once in blood, a name recorded is a soul eternally secure in Christ. You say, why are you so worked up about this? Because 34 years of pastoral ministry, people think that in some way God could lose them after he saved them. And I'm telling you, not according to what he's taught us in the word. And friends, I'm not doing it to argue with you over. I'm doing it to anchor you. Your salvation is not about your sufficiency. It's about God's. And even when hell opens up and unleashes, it will be of no threat to God. Satan is already a defeated foe in heaven. And that matters for your life here, today, tomorrow, and every other day after. Revelation 13, 11 through 18. A second beast rises from the earth. He has two horns and he speaks like a dragon. He has all the authority of the first beast. But look at his role. The role of the second beast is to make all the inhabitants of the earth worship the first beast with the mortal wound that's been healed. You see that refrain? In other words, there's a reference that the second beast is pointing to the first beast. That's his role. Look at how he works. He performs many great wonders and many signs in order to deceive earth dwellers. 
He instructs the earth dwellers to form the images of a beast. And then he gives the power to that image to make the beast speak. And he causes those who do not worship him to be slain. This is the way he works. And then it tells us that he marks all of the followers on the right hand or the forehead with a number identifying with him. And so whereas the first beast was trying to pull names out of the Lamb's book of life, now the second beast is countering the seal of God with the mark of Satan. And he marks all of those followers with some kind of promise of his security for, for to be able to, to, to exact commerce and trade. And you can be provided and protected, provided for and protected in this world. And what John tells us is he records that it calls for wisdom to understand and calculate the number of the beast, which is 666. The second beast is the false prophet who deceives. His alliance with Satan is to promote the worship of the first beast. And the worship is done through pagan religious power that serves in alliance with the wickedness of the first beast. So in the first beast, we're seeing wicked worldly structures, institutions. In the second, we're seeing wicked religious structures. The second beast wields great power to perform miracles and signs. He takes the images that people have created and he makes them appear as if they come to life so that they will deceive people and people are awed and wowed by the wow and they're entertained by it. Look at the great power and look at all the miraculous things that are taking place and it tells us that the second beast is doing this because in the entertainment and the wowing of what is transpiring, it is deceiving people to give their heart to worship the first beast by the power of Satan and ultimately to receive the mark so that they identify and signify their life with the Antichrist. There is an alliance here between religion and the political power that is solidified by this mark. And if you have to understand what is the mark, what are the numbers? Well, most scholars believe that it's a reference to what was called gematria, where in ancient times, letters of the alphabet served as numbers. And, and most scholars agree that, that, like, I'll be honest with you, I'm leaning on scholars right now because when math went from numbers to letters, Lane went out. Like, I, I, I don't mix, you know, I don't understand. I, I had enough trouble with English. I couldn't mix it with algebra and make sense of any of it. So I, I had to get out. So I'm leaning on scholars here. Most scholars agree that the number of the beast represented Nero in John's day. If you do any small amount of study on Christian history, you, you will learn that this person was one of the most wicked, notorious persecutors of people beyond imagination. I could give you illustration and story after story but I won't because it's too graphic and too gory to even imagine. You can read it. What they did to people simply for failing to worship them as God and not deny Christ who is God. 
But while the number likely represents Nero, it holds great meaning for all time. In other words, it didn't cease with Nero. And the second beast, who is the false prophet, works by great displays of power in many manifestations to identify people with the Antichrist. Friends, here we have the identity and the work of what is known as the unholy trinity. The dragon acting as God the Father, the first beast acting in the place of Jesus Christ, his son, and the third beast acting in the place of the Holy Spirit. And everything they do is to mimic the true triune God in order to deceive people, to captivate them, and to draw them away and to not believe in Christ Jesus upon whose blood shed on the cross defeated the foe, but to distract them in such a way that they buy in wholesale and identify their life completely with the mark and avoid the seal altogether. And all of this is the great tribulation of the last climactic struggle between God and Satan. Here's the third truth I want to set forth for us today. The false prophet will deceive and mark many for destruction. He will deceive and mark many for destruction. But all who are sealed for God will overcome the mark for Satan. The first beast tried to steal names out of the Lamb's book of life. The second beast tries to replace the seal of God with the mark of Satan. And I'm telling you, he can't do it. The beast manifests great power to awe and deceive, to draw attention to worship the first beast. And once that attention is captured, the false promise of security and provision is established by a mark that signifies identity with the devil. That mark is counter to the seal of God to identify those who willingly identify with Satan. But one thing the false Christ and the false prophet cannot do, they cannot remove any name from the Lamb's book of life, nor can they remove the seal from any person that God's Spirit has set upon you. Those recorded in the Lamb's book of life and those sealed by the Holy Spirit will not be marked by Satan by the false prophet, marked for Satan by the false prophet. And so here is the assurance that I'll leave you with from this truth. The soul sealed by God's Holy Spirit cannot be and will not be marked for Satan. They may die due to their faith, but they'll overcome the unholy trinity by the power of the triune God. These are not debatable truths, friends. These are not debatable assurances. For God who recorded and sealed you as his own is sufficient to sustain you for eternity. Satan won't get you because God's got you. He protects you and provides for you even as he did with the great wings of the evil that he gave to the woman to fly off into the wilderness away from the waiting dragon. Jesus is the Christ who shed his blood to conquer Satan. And all who are saved by faith are eternally secure in him. Now I'm ending this way and this is where the test comes in. 
we gain a lot of information about Satan in this passage, who he is, how it is that he works, and what it is that he is doing even today. But let us not get so much information that we lose sight of the real message. Christ is our victory, Satan a defeated foe. We do heed two great warnings from this passage that we receive today, and they are this. Number one, Christians refuse to trust in worldly power structures through, structures, through institutions and, and, and any structure that is established by politics or people power, economics or military power, because those are all subversive to lead us away from what God has promised. So we refuse to trust in that. Does that mean we don't involve ourselves in politics? It absolutely doesn't mean that. And if you've been around for very long, you know I absolutely don't feel that way and don't teach that. We stay engaged in politics to obey the creational command of God to exercise dominion. And when we are engaged in whether it's politics or any worldly institutional structure, education, healthcare, politics, it goes across the gamut, friends. We labor as people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ to carry the good of God as the very testimony of our lives. That's why we stay engaged in the world. That's why God has left us here. But we do not trust those structures for our salvation. You can't educate yourself into heaven. You won't ever find the cure for death in this world. And there won't ever be anybody that occupies the White House that fulfills the commission and the command of God in the New Testament. And yet we stay engaged. Because the beast is real. The second great warning is, hits a little closer to home. We reject the power of false religion, whether in images, authorities, ideologies, philosophies, pagan deities, or platforms, that deceives by any of a myriad of demonstrations and manifestations, but stand in contradiction to God's word. Friends, I don't know of any epoch of history when it has, and it's probably because I'm living in the one that we're in that I'm speaking of, when it has felt like that the kingdom of the red dragon has accentuated and accelerated more quickly than in the last half decade. Every institution of this world is being waved over like a tsunami for the cause of Satan. And it seems like it's unstoppable. It is not. It is not. We don't have an answer to every question that is given. We don't have even a response to all of the uh, uh, perceptions that are out there. But what we have is the word of God. And this concerns me more than any worldly institution when those who stand up in the name of Jesus Christ tell you that the word of God is not sufficient for you to anchor your life in, that we need to stop using it as the sufficiency for our faith. We need to stop telling people according to the Bible. The Bible says in God's word and so forth and so on. You need to stop listening to that. 
Because without the word of God, there is no resurrection that we know of. There is no ascension. There is no crucifixion. There is no atonement. There is no salvation. God has chosen to reveal himself, the living word by the written word. Soapbox descended. The Christian's hope rests only by faith in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, and now seated on the throne. That's what the word of God reveals to us. Here's the test. With all of this, it comes down to this for you and I. How then does one know that their name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life and that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit? How do you know? How can you know? Can we know? I present to you the scripture teaches we absolutely can. I'm gonna give you four questions to guide, to guide your response in this. And I'll say this, this week my full sermon manuscript will be on my website, you can go there. I would encourage you to take these four questions and after each there are a number of scripture texts that provide the truths of which these questions come from and that by, the, by those truths the spirit of God will work in you to confirm and assure you. The first guiding question by which you can know is this. Have you responded to the gospel by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you heard the message of God that you were created in God's image for a relationship with God, but sin separated you from God? Jesus came to earth as a man. He willingly laid down his life to be raised up on a cross, crucified in your place to pay your sin debt, so that when he was raised from the grave on the third day, ascended back into heaven, by faith in him, you receive forgiveness of your sin from God the Father, you receive cleansing of that sin by the washing of his blood, and you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he places upon you. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ in response to the good news of the gospel? Number two, are you listening to and living by the power of God's Holy Spirit in you? God seals you for a reason. And the Bible says that reason that he seals you with the Spirit is to guarantee to you that what he has promised you is true. It's a guarantee, friends. Are you living by the seal of the Holy Spirit that guarantees your eternal hope, that testifies to you of God's word in your conscience, by conviction, by the illumination for understanding of the word and for greater faith that you don't yet have, but God wants to bestow upon you for guidance and counsel, for righteousness and living. In all of these ways, the spirit of God is working in you, friends. The third question to guide you is this. Are you trusting in the promise of God's word? Those who are saved in Christ rest only in the faithfulness of God to honor his word to save. We don't trust in self. We don't trust in any man-made structure. We trust in the promise of God's word above all other. And question number four. Am I bearing a faithful testimony to the cross of Jesus Christ? In both the way I live, my obedience by faith, and what I say, my witness. God empowers by Holy Spirit all whom he has saved to live as a faithful witness in this world. If you'll be honest with yourself, search the scriptures and listen when you read them, God will show you whether he has sealed you with the Spirit 
and whether or not your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life. That's all you need to know to understand what is here and what is coming and what forevermore shall be when Christ's victory is placed securely at the end of the great tribulation into the beginning of eternity.